0: Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore the roles of science in our democracy and ways to make it work more effectively. I have with me today Dr. Andrew Rosenberg, director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Dr. Rosenberg has a distinguished record as a scientist, a regulator, and policymaker, and as a science administrator. Welcome, Andy. It's thank always you, good to start at the beginning. So Andy, tell us a little bit about the Union of Concerned Scientists and the Center for Science and Democracy.
1: Well, thank you, Jerry, and it's nice to be with you. Uh, The Union of Concerned Scientists is uh, over 40 years old. It was formed in the 1960s by scientists, mostly physicists, at MIT and Cornell, who were concerned about the course of the Cold War as well as the Vietnam War. And they stepped out of the university environment to speak out about what they thought were um, important information that the public should know and that people should express in our democratic system to understand the direction that government was taking. And at that time, of course, universities were very, like MIT, were very focused on um, work with the Defense Department. And so these um, eminent scientists really felt they needed to speak to a broader audience. And they did so, and the Union of Concerned Scientists grew out of that effort. They started doing teach-ins in Kendall Square in the mid-60s. Um, Now, we continue to work on global security problems, uh, both nuclear weapons and nuclear power. Um, uh, But we also have broadened out to other um, important societal challenges, uh, climate and our energy system, our transportation system and clean vehicles, food and the environment program, and the newest program at Union of Concerned Scientists is the Center for Science and Democracy the program that I lead, which focuses on the role of science in our democracy broadly. Um, The information that people have uh, pushing back against forces that undermine um, the ability of good information to get into the system of making public policy and attacking societal challenges.
0: So Andy, Um, do you think a democracy poses special opportunities and challenges for science and scientists Relative to some other forms of of government that we're all aware of,
1: well, I think there are special challenges, but we have to remember that, um, you know, the the famous quote that democracy is the worst system of government in the world, except compared to all the others. You no, know, it's a um, democracy is noisy. Um, everyone has uh, is entitled to their own opinion, um, but as Senator uh, Moynihan. Uh, was quoted as saying, you can have your own opinion but not your own set of facts. Um, But we live in a noisy environment and a very noisy world. Uh, Media landscape has changed very substantially uh, and people have a different set of channels that they can use to express their views, including at some time sometimes um, science views. And so science, we need need the capability and this is something that my program focuses on, to actually distinguish what the scientific evidence shows and what that means from um, essentially interest-based opinion, uh, which is not the same as scientific evidence. And uh, that's a hard distinction for people to make in the Internet age, where information is coming from lots lots of different places. And so in a noisy world, there are challenges for scientists to break through, and Frankly, the culture of the science community um, sometimes uh, doesn't help because we, as you know, are taught often, you know, do your work, stay in your lab. It's for others to um, decide how that information should best be used. Now that's changing substantially in the last couple of decades, but it still is a barrier we need to overcome. Scientists need to get out of their labs and talk about what they're seeing, what they're learning, and what they're discovering about the world. Um, but they're doing it in a, a difficult, noisy, and highly political environment. And sometimes
0: they're doing it at their own peril too, at those in in academic settings, because it can work against them in terms of promotion and tenure. Say a That's little. That's certainly
1: about. the case. It's also true in other settings, but particularly for academics, you know, we still live in a world where the most important um, effort is. Focused on publishing papers and doing the discovery work of science and that's how and and teaching of course but that is how promotion proceeds um, on and many scientists believe that you um, if you speak out in a public arena you are somehow compromising your science I firmly don't believe that but um, there are real challenges and as you alluded to there are forces who really don't like the answer that science comes up with. In many cases, don't like the scientific evidence, and one of the unfortunately well-known tactics to use if you don't like the answer is to attack the scientists themselves, attack them, their profession, professional credentials, uh, attack their message, um, you know, claim that they are somehow corrupt, and and so forth. And so we are seeing, unfortunately, an increase. Um, in direct attacks on scientists, um, harassment campaigns and the like, that really, you know, cause many scientists to pull back and say why, well, you know, I'd rather just go back and do the work that I trained to do, not engage in the public arena. Right.
0: And, and Andy, then, in our democracy, have there been the equivalent of golden ages or renaissances and the equivalent of dark ages for scientists and for science? And uh, Are either science or democracy at risk in the U.S. today? Well,
1: um, it's hard to point to a golden age, but we have to note that the founding of this country, um, in many cases, was based on uh, scientific principles. Our founders, you know, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, um, as prime examples, were citizen scientists. They had a deep interest in science. Um, And as they formulated the form of government that we have with checks and balances. They were thinking about the natural world explicitly and they talked about the natural world and its system of checks and balances. And that was, you know, in the age of the Enlightenment, and so it was a golden age. Um, Certainly after the Second World War, there was a golden age of science, although there were many challenges. Um, And, but it was a golden age of building up our research capacity, but not the only period where there were great advances and discoveries. That's happened throughout Um, throughout history in many ways, and certainly in scientific history throughout the last couple of centuries. Um, But there are real threats in the current day. I won't say that they're unique, they've never occurred before, but there are real threats. Um, There is again increasing political influence and the desire to um, manage the science process and direct it so that uh, people don't work on issues that might be viewed as inconvenient but it might seem frivolous to someone to say well can you explain that before you've actually studied the you know frivolous research seems to be those things that you can't say I know exactly what we're going to do with the answer once we get it and those are attacks on science and they ultimately are attacks on democracy because it doesn't allow democracy to develop following that evidence it says we already know what the answers should be we only want to do the things where we can get an immediate payoff and that is against democracy there are also, the kinds of attacks on science and scientists that I talk about, undermine democracy because they limit the information that people have in front of them as they think about where they want our society to go and express their views in a democratic society. So, the, there are real challenges here. Um, and some of them, you know, I, if I think about the, the consequences, it really worries me. That's why I do the work that
0: I do. Andy, those are all very important points. What are some of the biggest issues in science and in ocean management from your perspective that uh, you and your organization are concerned about today?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, of course, the challenges of climate change and global warming are enormous, and they are starting to affect um, everything, in the oceans and on land. The interesting thing is we sometimes talk about you know, um, climate science scientists and the consensus among climate scientists. Well, I'm actually not a climate scientist. I'm a marine biologist. Uh, I work have worked in fisheries, as you know, for for many years. But if you work um, on fish populations or marine resources of any type, then what we're seeing, what we're observing, is changes in the system that relate to climate. In other words, the background environment is no longer what we would call stationary, varying around a constant average, the constant amount of variation. Um, That's no longer true. The world is changing. And so, by default, everyone who works on the natural world is observing um, aspects of a changing climate. And that's a huge challenge to understand how those changes will play out, because they're not even. It's not as if even the air temperature warms evenly, or water temperature warms evenly, or Acid content in the ocean warms evenly. So understanding how the incredibly complex system of the world works Which is what science does um, it is an ongoing challenge and climate uh, change has provided a, an, an enormous set of drivers um, That are really changing thinking about lots of different things. I think that from a management context and in the oceans Um, Of course, there are challenges in managing the living resources like fisheries, but it's also coastal development and population pressure and the pressures that are coming from the land directly, runoff. um, In addition, and that's adding to um, the concerns about uh, how changing climate is affecting ocean and ocean productivity. Um, These are really hard problems. They're hard problems to understand for the scientific information to be developed. Uh, And there are hard problems for policy, Um, and so we need to be able to um, really up our game, if you like, uh, in learning more about the oceans, but then trying to bring that learning into what is emerging policy on coastal development, pollution control, use of coastal ocean space, uh, and responding to climate change itself.
0: And I think one of the, the real issues is the rate of change, not just the fact that we have change. And some some of those things that you mentioned, pollution, uh, coastal development, destructive fishing, overfishing, um, bycatch, those are things that we can act upon in the short term and they can have big, big positive impacts. Some of the others, with climate change, yes, we have to to reduce the, the emission of greenhouse gases, but the benefits that we're going to see from those are going to be well into the future. Comment on that, please.
1: Well, I mean, that's certainly true. There's a lot of things that don't have an immediate payoff, and it goes back to my earlier point of when you say in the science structure and the funding structures and, and um, review process, we only want to support things that have an immediate identified benefit. We're losing the concept of understanding the world more broadly for those those impacts we haven't yet defined. I mean, a good example of that is, you know, many years ago um, when David Keeling started measuring CO2 content on the top of a volcano in Hawaii. Um, well, the implication at the time, it was difficult to fund, but he was able to set up that monitoring program, which became fundamental information to understand that even that the risk of climate change was occurring due to CO2 emissions. Some people might say, well, it'd be better off if we didn't know that, then we wouldn't have to respond. Well, you know, the world is going to respond anyway. Another really good example, and I know this is something that you've thought a lot about, Jerry, is there's a lot of work in the deep sea. Um, There's a lot of exploration of marine environments um, that is absolutely essential, even though we don't necessarily know what we're going to find and we don't understand those environments yet. And, you know, the Ocean is, as you well know, more than 70% of the planet, and there's parts of the moon we know better than the ocean bottom. But if we decide we don't want to, you know, we can't afford to explore the ocean, because we're not exactly sure what we'll get when we do explore the ocean, then we're ignoring a huge part of our planet. We're ignoring part of the planetary system, the dynamic system that we live in as a part of. Um, You know, we we can't afford to give up on things um, like um, uh, exploration of new environments in the ocean as well as on land, but I mean the biggest unexplored areas are in the ocean.
0: And Andy, I totally certainly agree with all of that. I think while we're still making those investments, we need to shorten the time between understanding and application to benefit society and the environment. And to me, that's one of the hallmarks of the Center for Science and Democracy. And often you operate through interventions at the local level to help groups understand issues and get the information that they need. And you focus on helping them ask the right questions rather than giving them answers. I applaud this approach, but I wonder how do you scale that up uh, so that it makes a, a difference nationally and internationally?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting and difficult question and one that I wrestle with every day as you point out we have as an integral part of our program the idea that um, people have a right to information they have a right to that technical information it shouldn't just be um, held by a few it shouldn't be a matter that the government or that industry or any particular group says well we have the technical information we've looked at it and it's not really your concern um, Individuals have a right to that technical information. Not that everyone should be turned into a scientist and have to go into the details in great depth, but they have the right to ask questions. That's what a democracy is about. And then they have a right to form their opinions based on that um, information. A key part of that is having independent scientific information that is presented to say this is what the evidence is and this is what we think it means with the best knowledge that we have available now. Now, Every scientist is also a citizen and also wants to say, and this is what I think you ought to do about it. But that's a matter for, that's a societal choice of what we ought to do about it. One way to scale this up, I think, both nationally and internationally, is to make engagement by scientists really part of their careers. I mean, everyone might not want to be outside the lab and talking to a broader audience or talking to community organizations. But many scientists have that capacity, and to the extent that they do it that, they're bringing science um, to the rest of, of the country in a way that's really important. And the role is not to explain just your own research. Sometimes it's just helping people understand information that's in front of them. What's, you know, what does the graph mean and how is this determined? And can you give a, if you like, layman's description of where the information comes from? And again, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but they should have the capacity to be able to ask questions about what's going on around them, not assume that somebody else will manage it for them. And I think that's as true internationally as it is nationally. And that's not just for senior scientists like me, it's, I believe it's critically important um, for young scientists or scientists early in their careers and scientists from all kinds of disciplines and all kinds of backgrounds to try to take science back out into their communities. Um, and I firmly believe that actually we've seen a generational shift in the desire for young scientists to do this. I mean, I know from my own graduate students that they weren't satisfied with the answer of, well, you know, get an academic job and wait seven years to get tenure, and then if you want to do some of this stuff, that's okay. They want to have an impact now, and I agree with them. And and, and Andy,
0: I I also agree with you. I think, though, that in addition to encouraging young people to be involved, I think we have an obligation to create institutional platforms where where they can be involved uh, without uh, compromising their uh, careers in in academia, and it seems to me that's one of the things that you do in your program. It's kind of a catch-and-release program. You can bring in the best scientists for a particular issue, and then you release them, they go back to their university, so they they're not hurting their careers as researchers but they are using their knowledge to help solve a practical problem i'd like you to comment on yeah. that
1: i mean th- that's exactly right i mean i'm not sure we operate a catch and release program and <laughs> people but maybe that's the right thing for a fisheries guy to do um, the um, you know my program for the union of concerned scientists manages the union of concerned scientists Sci- science network which uh, consists of 18,000 credentialed scientists who have said, we want to work with you and we're looking for opportunities to connect them with community organizations or to connect them at a national level and sometimes international level where they can truly be engaged. This is more than just expressing their opinion. This is, you know, it's as much listening as it is imparting information of going outside of their traditional boundaries and talking to people about what the scientific evidence is, and, you know, that includes what we don't know. Um, uh, It's important to be able to distinguish when we do um, have information and where we don't have information. It's interesting in in a, you know, traditional science world, in an academic setting, you want to emphasize the stuff we don't know because that's your next project. That's the next research you're going to do. Um, but in a public setting, often you need to explain to people what we do know quite well, even if it seems self-evident to you because you've been working in a field for a really long time. And so, um, it's important to utilize the resources that something like our science network brings. And we also have, you know, half a million supporters and members that work with the Union of Concerned Scientists, and they're people who want to want that information, but they also want to act on it. They want to express their view publicly. And there are many other organizations that are engaged in, again, in our democracy, with people expressing their view publicly. And here's an opportunity for scientists to work um, hand-in-hand with their fellow citizens to try to make the world a better place. I mean, it's, Sounds grandiose, but that's actually what we're doing. And if it's one community at a time, so be it. And it doesn't matter if it's on public health and food, or if it's on marine resources, uh, or if it's on chemical safety, or if it's on climate change. All of those things can make a difference. And really, every scientist has something to contribute if they want to be so engaged. And Andy, I applaud you for what
0: you're doing. And you mentioned public health. I recently participated in a program with public health practitioners and scientists exploring how we can do a better job of communicating science so that people will make better health-related decisions. One of the speakers focused on e-cigarettes, another one on vaccines, and I was asked to comment about climate change. In all cases, there was a strong consensus among the scientists, but a significant number in the public dispute the science, and, and, and the feeling was that adding more facts to the argument isn't what's going to change people's opinions about vaccinations or e-cigarettes or climate change. I wonder what your response would be to that.
1: Well, I mean, that may be true. And people tend to listen to sources they trust. And there's actually good research that shows exactly that. So often people disagree. But what is also true is that if you talk to people, as opposed to just presenting information to them, there's an opportunity for, for people to to accept another viewpoint or accept new information. And so it's more than going out and giving a talk or sitting on a panel or being a presenter. It's actually being, in, what I mean by engagement, is listening to what people's concerns are, thinking about it carefully, not just being dismissive or responding immediately, um, and trying to think about that, how that their concerns might relate to what you know from the scientific evidence and you know we certainly don't want to overstate the case we don't know everything there is to know about climate Um, but we have very strong evidence on some key um, key uh, scientific facts that is that you know global average temperature is increasing global average co2 is increasing ocean acidification is increasing heat storage in the ocean is increasing sea level is rising Those are observations. They're not suppositions. They're direct observations and we know the source of those. We also have direct observation that that's related to um, CO2 emissions from human activities. Um, Someone might not accept what we should do about that, but having a discussion about what we've observed and what we still don't know is a particular weather event associated with, you know, a particular um, uh, aspect of global warming. Um, is in many cases uh, a good, um, uh, a good likelihood, but might not necessarily be, you know, nearly as good as the evidence on the fact that you know air temperatures and water temperatures are increasing.
0: And Andy, and so, I, think, I think it is uh, a conversation. Andy, I think we can do a better job of connecting those facts, that information to things that people care about emotionally, the future for their children and their grandchildren, and uh, because there is a lot of concern among, among people, even if they're climate deniers, about what kind of a future we're going to have.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that you, one thing my program does is we do tackle very controversial issues directly. Um, you know, hydraulic fracturing, chemical safety, food policy, um, which are extremely controversial, and sometimes in places that are, are um, hard to work because of the political climate or per- particular dominance of industry. We're doing some work in Houston now, just beginning to do some work in Houston now, which is a really diverse, very vibrant place, but has a huge um, uh, amount of industry and, and uh, strong you know, political culture. Um, You can't shy away from those places, but the reason we work on those issues is it's not sufficient to just talk about the process of science. You have to talk about issues that affect people directly. And if you're concerned about safety of your health and and, uh, the health and well-being of your family, that's inherently not a political choice. You're concerned about the health and well-being of your family. And so, you know, if you're concerned about um, exposure to a chemical, that's not a matter of whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a conservative or progressive, whatever. It's it's a, a genuine concern, and we need to bring science into that frame, not solely as a political tool. In fact, much of what my program tries to do is to say that the scientific evidence is inherently not political. The societal choices that we make in response may be political. In other words, not from the body politic. But the evidence itself is not political.
0: No, I certainly agree with that. We, we have a cartoon that I would like to bring up uh, on sure. the screen. And um, while you're looking at that, the late great Nobel laureate physicist Richard Feynman once said, you don't improve the quality of a technical decision by asking a lot of uninformed people. You've said that we live in a noisy environment. We all have the right to talk about the, the qualities of the environment that we want, the kind of future we want. How do you balance those, the, those two? The value of, of expert opinion versus what I may want uh, in terms of environmental qualities, but there orthor- or are be orthogonal to the kind of strategies I personally think are important to get there. I'd like your thoughts on that.
1: Sure. I, I, I have to tell you, I can't see the cartoon because I can't exactly see <laughs> I, the screen.
0: It, it's that, the one of the, all the, the equations on, on the board, and, okay?
1: Somebody from Twitter. Yeah. Yes, somebody so, from Twitter. Again, and it, everybody
0: in this, in this age in, day and age is an expert. And it's yeah, hard for the public is, to really know.
1: That, that's true. It's hard to know, you know where information is coming from. Um, and that's the point of the cartoon, which comes from our cartoon calendar from um, that we put out every year. And, you know, most scientists laugh at that cartoon. Uh, I suppose, you know, the people who are really into Twitter probably would say, why do you think that's funny? Um, you know, I mean, it is true that, of course, there is expertise in particular fields, and and Feynman was right. It's not a matter of voting on you know a particular bit of science but that doesn't mean that the public doesn't have a right to ask questions and the more the science community pulls back and says this is none of your business the more suspicious it seems and so I actually think that um, one thing that that cartoon brings up to me is that people need to be more engaged not less sure there's a lot of information coming out there but we spend a lot of time trying to, if you like, debunk misinformation. And some of, sometimes that misinformation is driven by special interests or political interests who do it for a very particular reason. And you can think of good examples of that. Of course, the tobacco industry in the past had, you know, part of their playbook, which is used by many other groups, um, was to provide a lot of misinformation or cast doubt on particular results. Well, now you can do that, you know, in, in cyberspace, but it's important for people to say wait a minute what's the real evidence what's your basis for saying oh yeah I don't you know that's wrong is there a real basis here it's a noisy environment that's part and parcel of democracy but that doesn't mean you know the response to that isn't to withdraw and pull back and say okay well you can't do anything then I give up if we do that then you've handed it off to people who want to spread misinformation
0: no, I, I and Andy, I totally agree with you. You know, there's a wonderful little book written a number of years ago, ago called The Unnatural Nature of Science. And in that book, the author concludes by saying that in the end, it, it's all of us, the politicians, uh, the doctors, the lawyers, the, the the ditch diggers, those of us who work in aquariums, we're the ones that ultimately make the decisions. And so to the extent that organizations like yours can improve the information that the public has, and put it in forms that they can understand it and help them make wise decisions, then we will have done something very important. And yeah, Andy, I, go ahead.
1: Well, I just want to say, I mean, we also need to recognize, as scientists, that science. I, of course, firmly believe science is very important. But it's not the only source of information. There is ex- people's experience. There is traditional knowledge. There's other forms of information. And we can't be too arrogant about this. That might be, sound like a strange thing to say from, as a scientist because there is an arrogance to science. But it's important to recognize that you know, part of being a good scientist is actually listening to what's going on
0: around you. And I, I think the, uh, the, the recent increase in interest in citizen science uh, is a very strong and positive move because uh, it used to be that the natural scientists, just citizens, uh, they they were the ones who contributed a lot of knowledge. And even today, we know more about invasive species in the marine environment from what citizen sciences scientists have observed than we do from what scientists themselves have observed. So there's a there's a definite role here.
1: Yeah, that's a I mean that's a great example. And and citizen science is a is a really interesting and important point that emphasizes this idea of engagement. I mean, if you do citizen science and it, it's a collection of observations but nobody really understands how things were collected or their, their standards aren't there, then it's harder to accept into a formal system of knowledge. But if scientists will work with citizens and help them figure out, so how do we structure the capability to sample in places that no scientist could ever afford to cover nearly as well as the broader populace can cover, then you've got a source of information that comes in that's not only wonderful for scientific research, but really brings people into the process of science. I mean, you know, as as you know, observations in the marine environment are very expensive to take, are very difficult to do, and you can only go to a few places. On the other hand, you know, people are out there in boats and, you know, or whatever way they get in the ocean and can make many 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 more observations than strictly a scientific vessel could make and so let's use that capacity but let's also help people do it in a way that actually fits into um, uh, the accumulation of evidence in in a way that um, is intellectually more satisfying
0: and I I think that we not only get very useful information but we get the, the better understanding by the public in science exactly. demystify it and they will be more supportive. Well, it's, it's time to bring this program to an end. I've known our guests for a number of decades and Andy, in every position that you've ever been in, you've made a difference and I'm sure that you're going to make a difference where you are with the Union of Concerned Scientists. So I want to thank Andrew Rosenberg for joining me on this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. I hope you will join us next month and look on our website for what the topic and the guest will be. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations.